Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. On the last episode of the Remnant, it was a sweaty, self-indulgent mess, and I promised you that we'd have a real guest on the next episode. And um, I am keeping my promise. A fan favorite, uh, repeat uh, remnant visitor, uh, my former co-worker, Jay Nordlinger, has corrected me on this. I can still say, I I don't have to say he's a former colleague because colleagues are sort of peers in the business. Um, But he's my former co-worker um, and my friend, uh, Kevin Williamson. Kevin, welcome back to the remnant. Good morning. I think you probably hear a dog barking in the background there, but uh, that seems appropriate for context yeah and 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 listeners should be prepared uh there's almost zero chance these dogs won't bark at some point and i'm not talking about my feet uh during this podcast um because uh, i'm here alone in this house in maine and every now and then the dogs hear um uh n- belgian ninjas in the woods and um feel like they have to bark at them or something else that they imagine how you been I kind of feel like you judged me from my dog, though, Jonah, because I've got a, a little miniature dachshund, which is not, you know, your traditional kind of, uh, you're not hunting wolves with it or anything, you know? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't, I don't think you should be hunting wolves to begin with. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a leave the wolves alone kind of guy. I was thinking of wolf hounds, you know? You're not hunting bears with it or badgers, which I think is what dachshunds were originally bred to hunt. I think that's right. Dachshunds are tough dogs. Um, uh they are, I traditionally call them tubular snapping turtles. Yes. I think I give you a pass in part because it takes a lot of masculine confidence, rightly understood, to have a dog like that. <laughs> and you Seven can pull them off. named Pancake, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but you know, I, I, we must have talked about this before, but um, the first piece, I, one of the first pieces I wrote when I was becoming like a, an actual writer writer for reals was for Slate, and it was on uh, canine eugenics. And I did it about um, the, the AKC had a breed guide, and they had to recall it over objections from Dachshund breeders because the, the book said that they uh, were uh, more likely to snap at little kids, and so they weren't necessarily good dogs for kids. And you had all these Dachshund breeders coming out saying this is literally i'm not making this up canine racism and the idea that you can judge one breed as different from another breed without taking all dogs as individuals is crazy and there's if you if you raise a dachshund right it won't bite people and like i'm sure that if you raise a dachshund right 
it's less likely to bite people than if you raise a dachshund wrong, and that's true of all dogs. Mm. But the idea that, that dog breeds don't have any content to them and that it's the analog to human racism is a was such a crazy, crazy argument that, it, anyway, I wrote about yeah. it. You know, I suppose, you know, you probably thought about this, I haven't read the piece, but the, the, the doggy racism isn't really a thing, but there's probably some, some human racism that enters into that conversation, particularly the way people have um, attitudes about pit bulls and mm-hmm. other allegedly dangerous dogs that tend to be owned disproportionately by people who are poor and not white. Yeah, I have many thoughts about that. Um, uh, I also think that there is, my wife hates this argument, but I think it, I think it is objectively true. I think dogs are inclined to racism and not because of any sort of Aryan kind of notions or anything like that, but that dogs are attuned to all sorts of things that we are not, including very subtle, extremely subtle odors, um, and they see monochromatically. So a dog raised among African-Americans is, it does not seem preposterous to me that that dog is more likely to code a white person showing up as an other. And dogs distrust others. That's part of their job. That's why we've kept them around campfires for for 400,000 years or whatever. And the same thing works the other way around, where if a dog grew up with like, okay, my pack of bipedal hairless apes smell this way and look this way, and then the mailman looks another way, it doesn't mean that they can't break through it. It doesn't mean that sweet labs aren't going to like love everybody or anything like that. But at the margins, I think that that's partly explains why people think that like, I can't tell you how many people have told me, oh, my dog doesn't like black people. And I've known black people who said my dog doesn't like white people. And I think it's, it's that step to it. Plus dogs also pick up on fear much like you. And, um, (laughs) indeed. And if you don't grow up around dogs, you're scared of them. And so like, I think a lot of inner city or poor people who don't grow up around dogs, they give off a fear of dogs thing that dogs pick up on and, and press an advantage. Of. Well, I'm sure your dogs are racist, Jonah. Mine are completely uh, enlightened. Although you're, you're not supposed to be confused though, because if you're talking about, you know, subtle differences between people, you know, I would imagine the, the, the imprint of upper West side versus the imprint of Alaska. It's gotta be very confusing in your household. It is. It is. Fortunately, we get them young and we train them to reconcile this, the cognitive dissonance of the two. I don't but, think you can um, train something out of that, Jonah. I think that's <laughs> it's a permanent fact of life. But, look, I mean, last, thing, last point on, on the canine eugenics thing is that breeds, it's different that, like, humanity hasn't been bred for specific outcomes on a large scale in quite a while, right? Hmm. Dogs, for a couple thousand years, or a thousand years, the puppies that you didn't want or didn't have the traits that you wanted they drowned or didn't breed. So like eugenics is a real thing for dogs in a way that it is. I mean, and, and the evidence for it is a poodle looks very different than a St. Bernard. And there's no way to explain that other than eugenic breeding programs. And it's, I don't mean it as a good thing or a bad thing. It just, it is what it is. Well, we don't have any badgers around here. So I think it's working. I think that's it. I think your your dog is scared away all about it. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm on a dog tear. I'll stop it. But you you provoked it. You know, in, in the podcast I do with Charlie, I have um, I really perfected the the art of finding everything to talk about instead of the day's politics uh, until about three <laughs> minutes in. Then we do ten minutes of the day's politics, and then it's time to go. Um, so you just like you're constantly uh, just making 
Blythe references to the gunpowder plot because you know it'll goad him into saying something. Charlie actually does get pretty bent out of shape about that one. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, but he's a very, as you know, because you've had him on the podcast a few times, he's a very, uh, very fun person to talk to. Yes, he's he's an outstanding talker. He's one of the few people who, it's a real gift. I'm sure there's a term for it in rhetoric, in classical rhetoric studies. He's one of the few people in our line of work who can really slow down the way he's taught the pace of his talking to add emphasis to it in a way that makes it more compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that came with training or if it's just a trick or if it's just, we're all being conned by that ridiculous accent of his, but he's good at it. I've actually talked to Charlie about that a little bit. And his, his telling is that it's, um, it's a particular Oxford thing Uh where you get really very strongly judged on your ability to speak extemporaneously. Uh, there and so it gets sort of drilled into people, and it's um, just part of the culture and part of the um, the way of life in, in that particular institution. It explains why prime minister's questions is just so superior to anything we have in American politics. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes people say we should we should emulate certain things like that, and I just can't imagine how bad that would be in the United States. Can you imagine? Here's a question for you: since you're a sort of a you're you're a good Hayekian. Mm. You get what you subsidize, right? You get what you reward, you get what you measure. So if we started a robust version, somehow did a robust version of Prime Minister's questions, wouldn't over time the system start rewarding people who were good at doing it? And so you would event, like in the beginning, it would be terrible. I completely agree. But over 10, 20 years, do you think that the system would sort of conform to the opportunity and you'd get better and better people at it? Well, I think this is a big difference in political culture in that what we would judge to be good in the United States is maybe different. You know, all of our problems in politics are demand driven, right? So I would imagine that the same sort of thing that has warped C-SPAN, which is a great idea in theory into being the kind of gross thing it sometimes is with, uh, you know, phony speeches and all that, would have to probably shape our version of prime minister's questions as well. Because we have, I, I think, just a different... Um, attitude toward politics. We're much more entertainment oriented and um, we're much more sort of small D democratic in the sense that we like that kind of, um, I could see this conversation happening around a kitchen table or over a bar, uh, over beers, uh, somewhere kind of way of talking and and doing and the kind of, you know, cheap um, on the other side uh, kind of stuff. I think we respond to in a stronger, more positive way. Than, than the British do. I think the one we ought to emulate is, you remember back in the 80s, they used to, there used to always to be like these brawls in the Japanese parliament on television? Mm-hmm. Always mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's what we should do. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, they still happen every now and then. Is it, the, is it the the Taiwanese parliament? I think they actually have like full-on melees. Um, that's the one I'm thinking of. Um, I might have got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, but they definitely, I'm pretty sure they also happened in the 80s in the, in the, in the Japanese diet, I believe uh, it's called. Yeah. 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 Um, I just like to have a spot quiz name, name what they call their parliaments in every country quiz, but I won't do that to you. Um, so, uh, as you may have heard the Indian parliament, but, uh, um, you're not going to get me off this. We have to do some (laughs) contemporary politics stuff. I promise we won't dwell. Okay. Um, uh, you may have heard, uh, the FBI raided, um, I use the right word raid colloquially, not necessarily because uh, it's funny. I was going to haul off on this point on, in a column and then 
it's the raid is not actually a legal term as far as I could figure out. And lots of people use raid in different contexts, different ways. But the way the Trump world wanted to frame it was like, this was some sort of Elliot Ness style, break down the door siege of Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't that, but they did search Mar-a-Lago, uh, the president, former president's home. And, and, uh, there's a lot of, um, of, of Sturm and Drang about it. What do you make of it? Sturm and Drang. Uh, people who pronounce docs in the way you do always are people who speak German, by the way. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I wrote a little 200-word corner post about this that for some reason a whole lot of people read. Um, we have a, a tradition in the United States in which we, we, we say that, you know, we are a republic and that holding political office doesn't confer any sort of special lifetime status on you. You know, we're not some sort of elected monarchy or something like that. So from that point of view, all this talk about this being unprecedented is nonsensical. Um, the FBI serves a lot of search warrants on a lot of homes in Florida, especially. Um, although <laughs> maybe the DEA is, is more often involved in um, in Florida searches. So, you know, someone was saying we can't act like this guy is just, you know, another citizen. Well, that's exactly what he is. He's just another citizen. A guy who used to hold an office doesn't hold it anymore. Might hold another office in the future. God help us, but doesn't currently hold one. So, um, it's not like the feds never get things wrong and they never engage in grandstanding or that sort of thing. I mean, I, I was at Waco. I have some some views about this. I've seen, I think, a kind of federal irresponsibility in its um, in its most direct and um, unrestrained form on that front. But as far as I know, no one's been able to, I mean, obviously this stuff is not public yet, so we don't know what the content of the warrant is and all that. We have an FBI director who was appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, we have an ongoing uh, investigation involving the documents from the archives that they've been asking to get back. So it's not difficult to imagine a scenario in which this is completely legitimate and that um, the thing that they are trying to prevent is the destruction of uh, documents that may be evidence in a crime or that may be important for some other reason. So there are. What is it? There's five congressional committees that have oversight responsibilities for the FBI in, in various ways. And I believe in really strong congressional oversight. Um, another thing I have in, in, in common with, with our friend Charlie is that I, I wish that Congress would assert itself more than it does and really play its constitutional role more than it does and not sort of roll over to the executive the way it does, which means engaging in much, much stronger oversight including when the party controlling Congress is the same as the party controlling the White House, because even if you're a Democrat in Congress, your interests, um, both as a politician and as a member of an institution, are not the same as the White House's interests, even if you're in the same party. So I am reasonably confident still in, in most of our institutions, including the FBI. Again, if someone says... Um, this is wrong or this is dirty and here's why and I've got the evidence. It wouldn't surprise me entirely. I mean, you see abuses like this in law enforcement all the time. You see prosecutors who misbehave themselves. You see the IRS misbehave itself from time to time. You see other regulatory agencies misbehave themselves from time to time. I'm not saying this stuff can't happen. It certainly can. Um, there's no reason at this moment to believe that that's the case right here. And um, one of the things, the problem about being, you know, um, about having Donald Trump in our, in our public life 
is that every time there's some outrageous claim made about Donald Trump, some of which are true and some of which are not, no self-respecting person, even if you love the guy, can say, well, that doesn't sound like the Donald Trump I know. <laughs> Gosh, he, he's a, he's a law-abiding, rule-following person who is entirely scrupulous about making sure that, you know, every I is dotted and every T is crossed and all that stuff. I mean, he is a guy who um, at best plays uh, fast and loose with the rules, certainly seems to hold them in contempt in many cases. Um, I also just kind of don't like this thing we've developed um, of really in some ways pretending like people in the executive branch are above the law. I think it's a misinterpretation of separation of powers. Now, I'm not a congressional constitutional lawyer, so uh, this is not my particular area of expertise. But when Congress gives someone a subpoena and they say, well, no, I don't have to uh, comply with this because I used to be an advisor to the president three years ago, uh, I think those people should be locked up. Um, I think that you have to follow the law at some point. And I think that this applies certainly to ex-presidents. I think it really applies to presidents as well. Uh, I think that if you're going to have laws, then the laws have to apply to everybody. Now, I understand that gets into some separation of powers questions when you're talking about sitting presidents. Uh, but the law has to be followed, I think. And um, and that means that you have to do the things to enforce it. And sometimes that means serving a search warrant. It's um, And serving a search warrant is, is a relatively low-level thing. Uh, I mean, it's you know, it's it looks, I guess, sort of shocking on the cameras and all that. But um, it's a far different thing from actually having you know, an indictment or a prosecution or sending someone to prison or something like that. Although it is a little ironic for me to uh, you know, have a guy who got elected chanting, lock her up, um, over a, a kind of similar uh, set of allegations with Hillary Clinton, uh, now saying that this is uh, beyond the pale. One of the things I did want to uh, share with you, though, um, so I wrote this little post and it got bounced around a lot. And, you know, sometimes how um, something, there's this, I, I call it the um, the uh, reluctant fan club. You know, mm-hmm. there are people, I normally wouldn't cite something from Kevin Williams. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, this. Yeah. And um, I, that kind of stuff is normal, but there's kind of a reverse version of that too. So among the people who were promoting this uh, little thing I wrote and say, you really have to go read this, were Dan Rather and Matt Iglesias. <laughs> like, did it have to be them? Did it have to be that worm? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the clicks and all, but Pete's sake, uh, Iglesias is kind of the worst. Um, Dan Rather, actually, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but his screw-ups in the way that they sort of shaped the culture of early internet journalism are going to be something historically important that we'll still be talking about in 100 years. I think that's right. So I, I've been noodling this the president's not above the law thing for a while. Yeah. And I agree with it entirely as a matter of principle and theory. But as a matter of actual uh, praxis, um, it's, uh, it's just fa- flatly not true. I mean, it's just, it's, it's it, as a practical matter in, in terms of uh, at the intersection of politics and law, it's just not true. First of all, it is the, it is the, it hasn't really been tested much, but it is the express policy of the Department of Justice that you cannot indict a sitting president. Mm. Boom. Right there. Obviously, because you know, the whole justice delayed is justice denied thing, right? I mean, like, at the very least, if, if 
if you or I, if the DOJ knew that you or I committed a first class felony um, under federal law, they would not wait until we finished our current job um, before indicting us. Right. right? And um, um, and similarly, the argument from people across the political spectrum, that's the tubular snapping turtles going at it. I'm sorry for the mute thing here. Yeah, it's gonna... Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. If remnant listeners are not um, somewhat indulgent of, of <laughs> the facts of life when it comes to dogs, then then I don't know what podcast listeners are. But this argument that you hear all over the place, and which I think is politically right as a matter of analysis, is that ter- the attorney general would not sign off on a search warrant for the former president without going over with a fine-tooth comb that the entire you know, leadership of the DOJ would have debated this and sweated this, and they would have agonized about it. Um, my colleague, Sarah Isger, who worked in the Department of Justice, on, they did a, an emergency podcast on this for advisory opinions, and she walked through how, where this would start and all the levels of scrutiny it would get mm-hmm. and all of the sort of, you know, like, holy crap, do we really want to do this at various levels that would go on? So as a matter of political analysis, I think it's a very valid point to say the attorney general is not going to sign off on a search warrant for a former president um, unless he thinks it's, pardon the pun, but warranted and um, and that it's worth doing, right, given the consequences. Now, it could be that Garland's political radar sucks and he doesn't know what he's doing or that this is a bubble thing or there's some weird political angle about appeasing the base. Who knows, right? Because it doesn't seem on face value like this was worth doing given the blowback, Mm. but we don't know, right? We just don't know. But that too suggests that the president and even former presidents um, forget above the law, below the law. We just have a higher standard, right? We have a different standard for former presidents than we do for alleged drug dealers or embezzlers or, or, or anybody else. And whether that's good or bad is a different question, but it's, I just think it's factually indisputable. No? Yeah, I was thinking about this this yesterday, in fact. Um, someone, uh, might have been Dan Bongino on the radio. I do this for my sins. I listen to talk radio. And um, I was talking about the issue of double standards. And, um, you know, I was thinking he used to be on the NYPD. He's seen double standards at work because, you know, cops don't get DUIs. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get citations for, uh, you know, public intoxication, that sort of thing. And we do have double standards in this stuff. Absolutely. But I think that our error really historically has been in failing to um, uphold the law when it comes to powerful and uh, connected people. Um, There was really a pretty good case that there probably should have been some legal action against uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, But if you look at the cases in which people have actually gone to prison over this, I mean, people do go to prisons for um, classified documents uh, violations. They tend to be nobodies, you know, pretty Mm -hmm. low level people. So, you know, Sandy Berger gets a, gets a misdemeanor right. conviction. and Petraeus gets a sweetheart deal. And yeah. then, you know, someone else actually goes to federal prison for 30 months. Um, who was the person? Um, it was, what's the guy's name? Um, 3,000 documents or something that he wasn't supposed to have on him, and they put him in, in prison for it. Was it? I can't remember the name. Uh, it'll come back to me, sorry. Okay. Um, but yeah, so this is a crime that people go to jail for. It's not a crime that people you've ever heard of go to jail for, typically. And I think that's a real, real problem. I think that if anything, we should err in the in the opposite direction, in that we should approach people who have a particular professional responsibility for law enforcement, as every member of the executive branch does, um, in some way, 
and particularly presidents, to face a higher standard and a higher level of scrutiny when it comes to the law. Uh, you know, if you are the chief law enforcement officer in the land, which the, the president is in terms of the federal government, then our expectations should be pretty high um, rather than relatively lenient. You know, the situation in the country shouldn't be where we're, you know, arresting people for selling uh, loose cigarettes who are semi-homeless people in poor neighborhoods in various places around the country. Uh, but presidents can get away with committing, you know, serious violations of federal law. It should, if anything, be the other way around where we're a little more indulgent of people who have less control over their lives and, you know, fewer resources and that sort of thing, and more uh, strict and more scrutinizing when it comes to people with lots of power and lots of resources. But instead, predictably, for obvious reasons, we take the opposite tack. I think that's a correctable thing, though. Um, it takes a change in political culture and how we talk about this stuff. But I think it is a, is a correctable thing. And, you know, this is a hobby horse of mine, and I won't go on a 10-minute lecture about it, but the evolution of the presidency into this sort of, you know, quasi-sacrosanct mystical person who is, um, in some sense, a kind of, you know, God king who's the embodiment of the national ethos and all this stuff, which is the reason why we fight over the presidency in cultural terms rather than policy terms, is probably the single most destructive intellectual development in American public life. It makes every election essentially, you know, a kind of existential uh, good and evil Manichaean confrontation rather than a question about whether the top tax rate is going to be, you know, 41% or, or 36%. No, I, I'm totally with you. I mean, for uh, a while now, I've been comparing it to like the era of the glorious revolution where just the idea of having a Protestant on the throne yeah. was such an affront to the worldview of Catholics and vice versa that it had le- nothing to do with how the king would rule. It was all about whether the king is one of us or one of them. And I think that's what we've done to the presidency. On your point, it's a good point um, that I hadn't thought in this way until now, but, you know, if we put more elites in jail for doing things that that we put proles in jail for, we might have less of a populism problem today, yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, because there is this sense that they get away with everything, the rules don't apply to them, and that pisses off the little guy, understandably and justifiably. And if you saw, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton should have gone to jail, uh, at least not for that, but um, I'm not, I'm also saying that maybe that she should, you know, like who knows? I mean, like I just listened to this podcast about Chappaquiddick. Yeah. Uh, Ted Kennedy, you know, would have, it would have been, I mean, it would have been a huge shock to the system to have a Kennedy in the who's gal. But uh, at least back then, now we're kind of used to the idea. Um, well, but Teddy's time, it was at least a generation since there had been a Kennedy in prison. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but my point is, is you know, like Petraeus got this amazing sweetheart deal for his handling of stuff, and and with Sandy Berger, I mean, like Sandy Berger, it's the kind of thing if you had described it in the abstract before it happened, said, okay, the former National Security Advisor is going to go and look at the most sensitive national security documents, shove them in his pants and socks and try to steal them (laughs) from a secure location in order to like game the narrative about how the Clinton administration handled uh, the war on terrorism. He was like, well, of course he'd go to jail for that. In the water, Clinton orbit stuffing your pants is not like the huge surprise, I think. Well, no, it's the unstuffing your right, pants that is normal. It's the stuffing that is, is abnormal. Well, you know, you want to, to cut a better profile, I guess, in some ways. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that stuff is, um, 
something I've written about a, a lot, and particularly in, in reference to Hillary Clinton, is that one of the problems we have with scandals in the United States is that the real scandals are too complicated. So the Clintons are a great example of this. Clinton, uh, you know, dipping into the intern pool and treating it as his personal harem was a big scandal that everyone understood because everyone understands sex, essentially, and, and why you don't cheat on your wife and why you don't uh, behave the way Bill Clinton did. I mean, even, um, you know, even members of the Ayn Rand fan club have heard of sex. You know, they, <laughs> it is. They've seen uh, movies. They've read about it in books and in bad, bad, bad scenes in novels, particularly. But if you look at something like Hillary's cattle futures trading stuff, which was straight up corruption, uh, this is something that, you know, she, somebody really should have gone to jail for. And in fact, the, you know, the guy who was involved in, in handling her trades for her did get into various kinds of trouble for, for stacking accounts and things. But trying to explain futures trading to, you know, the typical American voter is a really, really difficult thing to do. Um, you know, I've, I've spent 30 years trying to get people to understand that there's no such thing really as a Social Security trust fund. It's kind of a figure of speech. And uh, people just look at you like you're, you know, from, from Mars. So we understand the kind of, you know, simple uh, offenses and the more serious, complex ones. It's, it's difficult to make that really part of the conversation. And I think it's kind of an interesting problem because, um, because, of course, powerful people get away with stuff like that a lot more, too. But they also get away with the regular stuff, you know, more often, too. Um, you know, whatever happens to Nancy Pelosi's husband after his DUI is probably not going to be anything like what would happen to, you know, a poor Spanish-speaking agricultural worker in the Texas Valley who gets a DUI in the same kind of circumstances. It's going to have a much, much larger uh, effect on his life. And this isn't just true of people who are, you know, famous and, and wealthy on the level of Pelosi's. It's kind of the whole American, you know, kind of upper class in a sense that, um, you know, if you or I get into some sort of legal trouble or something like that, we know lawyers, we have a little bit of money to throw at the problem. You know, we know how to sort of endure in the system and all that. It's much less disruptive to to our lives, as someone who's been arrested more than once can tell you. Uh, but um, and I think that that you're hitting on the, the sort of populism issue there. There really is a, a great difference in outcomes and how we live between uh, the kind of people who are um, in positions of relative affluence and influence and the great majority of the population. And that's, of course exaggerated to a huge extent when you're talking about people who are speaker of the house or married to a very powerful person or president of the United States or something like that. So, um, I'm going to straight up by the time people hear this, I'll have written the Wednesday Jew file. So, uh, you know, uh, the space time continuum will seem weird on this, but I haven't started it yet. I got a recording this Wednesday morning. Um, I mentioned this last night on a dispatch live event. Uh, apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but Rich mentioned it on the editor's podcast that Mike Huckabee went on Fox, I guess yesterday, and said that this raid is such a banana republic outrage that Republicans should essentially forego the primaries and renominate Donald Trump by acclamation. Now, uh, if I got that wrong, I'm sorry. Maybe I misunderstood Rich, or maybe Rich misunderstood what Huckabee was saying. But I've seen that sentiment all over the place. This helps Trump. This is, you know, the banana republic thing is all over the place. Now, what I'm looking for is an example of this point in in a various banana republic country. But it seems to me the most banana republicy thing imaginable 
is to say our strongman, our Caldeo, has been insulted. The forces of our enemies have, have, have transgressed his sacred home. And we must therefore seize power <laughs> and punish our enemies for the insult that they have delivered upon our leader, right? That is banana republic thinking. And it's just so, it's like so much of the last six years is this weird projection where the things that people complain on the left and the right, the things that people complain about the system are just the things they do too, but they don't, but they can only recognize it when the people they don't like do it, right? It's my thing I keep bringing up from the Simpsons where the kids from, from Springfield are running away from the kids from Shelbyville and they find a candy wrapper in the woods and Milhouse says, oh, those Shelbyville kids, they love candy for the sweet, sweet taste, right? No, kids love candy for the sweet, sweet taste. And this sort of tribalism stuff where people point out the tribalism of others or the banana republic behaviors of others, I get calling this a banana republic move. I'm not sure it is one, but I understand why you might think it is one. But if you then follow up by saying, and that's why, you know, our guy, you know, needs to be reinstalled in power to punish these people and clear out the stables, that's a banana republic response. Yes. My, my banana is bigger than your banana is, is, is what it ends up being. Yes. And, uh, and it's bananas all the way around. I think that, um, you know, I wrote another thing on, on, on Tuesday about um, lies in politics and the ways in which that has become really central to our um, politics in a way that it wasn't um, maybe 40 or 50 years ago. I and mean, there have been lies in politics since the first politician, um, but the kind of uh, adopting this this position of, endorsing dishonesty if it serves your ends as a kind of norm, I think is, is a relatively new thing. And as, as you, as you know, I'm not Mr. Republican partisan, um, or Mr. Republican at all. And, and, and some time now, it's been 20 years since I've been a Republican, man, time flies, but, um, 20 years now, it couldn't have been that long. Anyway, something close to it. Um, but that, that being said, I really do kind of trace this back to the Bill Clinton presidency and, um, I remember observing at the time when I was I was in college that um, when Clinton would lie, everybody kind of knew he was lying, but the Clinton admirers, and they weren't just voters and they weren't just partisans, they were admirers. Uh, they, they loved the guy in, in many ways. Um, it's analogous to, to attitudes some Republicans have toward Trump, although different important ways too. But they enjoyed being lied to. Um, as long as they felt that they were being lied to skillfully, you know, that to them seemed a kind of mark of sophistication, that this is what politics is really supposed to be about. It's, um, you know, the truth doesn't matter. Honesty doesn't matter. Virtue doesn't matter. Good behavior doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. What matters is coming out on top in the day's news cycle. And I think that that really has sunk in in a very, very deep and, and I'm afraid, permanent way into our politics. And so this, um, that in combined with the personalization of politics when it comes to the presidency, and this is particularly true in the case of Trump, because Trump really is unusual in that he maintains and has built something that I think you could fairly deserve to call a personality cult in a way that I can't think of any other modern American politician has. Um, I mean, maybe if you look back at the example of Huey Long, or I, you might make that example, you might make that argument for Franklin Roosevelt, 
that, that Roosevelt had maybe a similar kind of cultish devotion among, among certain people, particularly in the, in the agricultural uh, parts of the country in the South. But, you know, that sort of um, rejection of the normal guidelines for decent, civilized human behavior in combination with the centrality of the presidency and the increasing personalization of presidential politics um, really does put you in a position of, I've used the term banana republic too much in my writing, so I'm not saying everyone else has, but I certainly have. And I've repented of it a little bit because um, I think I went through a period where I was being excessively pessimistic about uh, the situation in the United States and our institutions and whatnot. We've got a lot of problems and they're real problems, but they aren't Venezuela's problems and they aren't Pakistan's problems. They aren't, you know, they aren't even Mexico's problems. So um, I don't want to um, get too hysterical about that stuff. But this does push you in the direction of that kind of, you know, family dynasty, Marcos, uh, you know, kind of politics. And I think that is something that has to be really, really actively resisted. And the problem is that um, there's always this perception in both camps that the other side is going to do whatever it takes. And that's our moral permission slip to also do whatever it takes. And the problem is that there's a grain of truth to it, that we've adopted this, you know, politics of uh, procedural maximalism, where, you know, every nomination to the Supreme Court, every nomination that has to go through Senate confirmation, every chance to use the filibuster, every chance to attach something to an appropriations bill or to use the reconciliation process to get some social legislation passed is now exploited. There's no, you know, real sense of restraint or prioritization and um, I don't know how to go about fixing that. You know, there's a thing in, in a lot of the social science literature that says that people tend to behave better when they expect a relationship to be a long-term relationship and to consist of lots of repeated interactions. So if this, you're just having this one interaction with this, you know, waiter who's given you the wrong dish or something, your steak didn't come out the way you wanted it to, and you expect it never, ever to happen again, you're never going to see this person again your attitude toward that person is probably going to be less charitable and less decent and less neighborly than it is if you live in a small town of 7,000 people and there's two restaurants and you're going to be back there again tomorrow. And um, so you're going to behave yourself differently. Now, you would think that that would work in a virtuous way in politics in a country where you've got a 90-something percent re-election rate for incumbents. You would think that, you know, I mean, Pelosi's been in Congress for, I don't know how long, uh, when did she first get elected? It was in the 80s, 90s? I want to say like 81, like 80, you know, like like really early 80s, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, she. I mean, she was relatively young. She's been there for a long time. So, you know, Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate the year I was born, and I am not young. Speaking of which, I heard you talking about Georgetown cocktail parties, and the last time you went to one was for your 50th birthday. That was also the last Georgetown cocktail party uh, I went to. And uh, <laughs> it'll be my- It was a good party. It was a good party. It'll be my turn this time around, though, because I'll be 50 this year, too. So, um, you know, Joe Biden's been in politics and elected office my entire life. There are a lot of other people who've been around that long. They've got long term relationships that have consisted of repeated negotiations and repeated interactions. You would think that that would build virtuously in the, in, in the way those relationships are supposed to, the way they do elsewhere in life. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to work in American electoral politics where every interaction is treated like it's the last interaction there's ever going to be. And there's never going to be, you know, a next time around, you know, think about Schumer, uh, you know, kind of uh, lying to McConnell about the, um, the recent, uh, you know, big uh, climate and, and tax bill. McConnell's going to remember that, you know, and he's not a guy you want holding a grudge against you because 
he's pretty good at politics. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have a hundred, he's not batting a thousand, but he's batting pretty close to it. And um, you would think that there would be some built in restraints based on self-interest, if nothing else, but that doesn't seem to function. And I'm kind of mystified by it. It's something I was spending a lot of time thinking about, and I haven't really come up with anything uh, persuasive to me anyway about why that is. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple different theories about it. I mean, one is the the growing sense among Americans and the political class that we live in a parliamentary system and that the second that you get elected, you should be able to do whatever the hell you want. Right. You know, um, and all those people in the primary saying on day one, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, no, you won't. I mean, like you literally, it's against the law for you to do half of those things. And, um, and another one is because of the 50, 50 nature of our politics, there is this self-perpetuating cycle where parties get elected thinking that it's their last chance to ever govern again. So they swing for the fences, which proves exactly according to the dynamic you're describing, which then makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy because they will invite a backlash that sweeps them out of power. And that we've seen that over and over again, where, you know, Obama goes for the swings for the fences, Trump swings for the fences, uh, you know, Biden wanted to swing for the fences and then it, creates a backlash and and then the party that gets in tries to do the same thing and it becomes a seesaw kind of thing. The thing I actually want to ask you about, I wrote about this last week. Um, it was a bit of a tirade. Um, um, and it's something just sort of been gelling in my head for a while now. I, 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 I hate the idea of new politics. And I hate the idea of, of new ideas in politics. And what I mean by that is like, if you believe that the Constitution's here to stay. The democracy is here to stay. That um, our basic constitutional order of federalism and all the rest is here to stay. Then there really can't be any such thing as a new politics. There can be new strategies, new campaigns, new coalitions. But it's the it's like as long as the rules of monopoly, you know, or risk or whatever, are the, remain the rules then there are only, or chess or go or whatever, there are only so many variations of that game that you can do. And none of them are metaphysically, philosophically, fundamentally new. They may be, they're new variations, but it's the same sort of thing. And the problem that you get in politics now is that there's so many people who are clamoring for this sort of utopian, this idea of that we are going to transcend the old politics and enter this new era. You know, we saw it really with Obama. We are the ones we've been waiting for. This was the moment the oceans were going to recede and all this kind of stuff. Um, that whole is Obama the Messiah thing. But when you tell people that there is this new idea that is going to set men's minds aflame kind of thing, it creates panic in the other side. And so like the example I used last week was, um, was anti-racism. Now, racial groups have demanded, made you know, not just racial groups, minorities of all different stripes have demanded more justice and more stuff. It's in the history of all democracies, that happens. Sometimes they are justified in their demands, certainly on the more justice side, that's happened many, many times. And sometimes even may, arguably you can make a case on the more stuff side, right? But the answer to that is always the same if you believe in the kind of stuff that you and I believe in, which is equality before the law, right? It's the, it's the whole Calvin Coolidge, 
this is final, right? If all men are created equal, that's final. You're not going to come up with a new idea that supplants that. And, but when you, this anti-racism thing, it convinces a whole bunch of people that they, ah, this is such a new idea. All of your old arguments don't apply to this because this is this new salvific, you know, thing that is going to pull us out of, of the old world and we're going to remake institutions and start at year zero and blah, 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 blah. And that freaks out the jackasses on the other side who say this new threat, like this Ed Klingenstein guy who's the chairman of the board at, at Claremont, you know, gives this speech about how we need to have Trump back in power because we need a manly man. Yeah, I wrote about that. And this, yeah, yeah, no, the thing you wrote about it, you wrote about it too. And, the, and he says it's necessary to fight woke communism. And so you have these two sides that end up believing the other side actually has a new idea. And there are no new ideas. And if you if you could accept that, you won't get people freaking out. I I I, I can kind of understand why that's the case on the left, uh, because the left is sort of you know inherently utopian. Uh, so if you believe that your mission is to manage and organize society, um, you know the kind of progressive factory model of society, then every you know kind of new idea for an organizational plan is is potential remaking of of society. I don't get it among conservatives. Because there's no such thing as new conservatism. Uh, you know, conservatives are, are supposed to be skeptical of novelty. And um, I think you're right, particularly on the right, that this is often driven by careerism. You know, people looking for, uh, it's, the, it's the thing of starting a new club to give yourself something to be in charge of. And um, so this idea that we see, you know, once every generation, there's the new right, the new, new right, the new, new, new right. Um, we have a different kind of conservatism. No, you don't. Um, it's, it's, it's the same stuff. It's always been, um, often it's, as you pointed out, the resurrection of some really bad ideas and the resurrection of some stupid rhetoric. Um, you were joking about Georgetown cocktail parties, but as you pointed out in your podcast, uh, I guess it was last week that people have been bitching about Georgetown cocktail parties since the sixties and Richard Nixon, uh, talking about that sort of stuff. It's not, it's not a new, uh, thing. Although, um, I live a lot closer to Georgetown, Texas, than I do to Georgetown in uh, Washington, and people still, you know, refer to to my my desire to be at Georgetown cocktail parties, which is, um, of course, silly. Yeah, I agree that there aren't really a lot of um, new ideas, and uh, if anything, what we've been seeing, what I've been talking about with with the presidency, is the resurrection of the oldest political idea, really, which is the idea of the president as divine king, you know being this sort of mystical embodiment of, of the people and the virtue that infects everything. Like how we talk about the economy, you know, the, uh, well, if the president really cared about people like me, then my life would be better as though, you know, the economy ran on empathy and not on capital. So I think that we, I think we invent a lot of things to talk about as a way of not talking about other things that are more difficult and, uh, more real. So if you want to talk about the things that actually need to be done in the American government, you know, we've got some real long-term fiscal problems. We have um, a pressing need to reform some entitlement programs. We have some institutions that are really in need of reform, particularly at the local level. Uh, public schools and, in some cases, law enforcement really needs uh, to be to be reworked, I think, in a lot of American cities. Um, but we don't want to talk about that stuff because, first of all, it gets boring and because uh, there's a lot of detail stuff and a lot of just ordinary and dry policy stuff. But also, it doesn't really give you any, um, you know, catharsis. What we really want out of politics is, is this kind of embarrassing public group therapy session 
in which we you know all get together and scream our values and our hatreds and our loyalties and our sympathies in in some way that is designed to give us a sense of meaning in our lives which is how politics ends up operating as a kind of substitute religion rather than you know dealing with these kind of you know boring everyday nuts and bolts things that are going to ruin the country <laughs> if we don't deal with them eventually um you know, I remember in the 90s when Canada went through its fiscal crisis and they actually came out of it pretty well. They adopted a pretty good um, reform package. But you've never seen something like that happen in a country whose economy constitutes something between a fifth and a fourth of the you know, economic output of the human race. That's going to be a really ugly scene if we let it get to there. But um, this is the was it Robin Hansen whose famous thing is politics isn't about policy. And he's got the list of this isn't about that. I think his politics is policy was one of his. And I think that's that's really true. We are engaged in this kind of really almost entirely symbolic uh, cultural politics that doesn't have much to do with how the government is run. And I think that the, the, the Trump years were actually a pretty good example, um, a way of unveiling that among Republicans, because you had a guy who was um, not only in terms of his history of being attached to the Democratic Party and such, but also in terms of his policy views, was really not much of a conservative. You know, he um, he sounds like Bernie Sanders when you talk about the carried interest uh, tax treatment and that kind of stuff. And uh, But no one really cared about that because he was the right kind of cultural mascot and the day-to-day governance stuff. They figured either didn't matter because it's going to kind of go on as though it's on autopilot or it's just not that important to uh, to people, at least relative to other kinds of cultural concerns. And that's... We've got this weird new rhetoric about, you know, um, cultural Marxism. Well, the old Marxism was a real thing. And there mm-hmm. were countries that were organized around those principles. And those countries had armies and nuclear weapons and stuff. And cultural Marxism is like, I feel like I was not treated fairly on Twitter. That's a different <laughs> thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not important. Uh, the culture stuff really does matter. And how the, um, you know, the public square, the rules of the public square, I think, are really very important. But it's not really quite the same thing. But we've, rather than having new ideas like people are talking about, we don't we don't even have new words for the things that we need to talk about. So we're resurrecting these things and saying, well, you know, the Biden administration is communist or Marxist or whatever. Well, they're dopes. Certainly, they've got bad ideas and bad policies. They are not communists. I remember getting into this dumb discussion with someone once, where um, he was describing Michael Bloomberg as a radical leftist. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, he's a lot of things. He's, you know, he's a crackpot. He's kind of an authoritarian in some ways. He's got some good ideas. He was pretty good being mayor of New York. He's got some really, really bad ideas. He's got some strange obsessions. The guy is not a radical leftist. I think he's a leftist of any kind. Um, he's uh, a bit of a crank sometimes. He's sort of an autocratic technocrat. Right, I mean, but it's the only language we have now, really, is that um, yeah. everyone on the yeah. right's a Nazi for the other side. Everyone on the other side is a radical leftist or a Marxist or a communist or a socialist for um, for people on our side of the fence, which robs us of the ability to talk about things in an, in an intelligent way, because there actually are socialists in American public life. And there, there are more now than there were 20 years ago. And they're more important. You know, Bernie Sanders and AOC and people like that are much more politically important people. They're not the most politically important people, but they're a lot more politically important than any card-carrying socialist was in the 1990s certainly. And, um, but if we, if we use the word socialist to talk about everything except socialism, then we don't have words left over to talk about socialism. Yeah. I mean, a a good example of this, and I admit, look, 
I was raised by a very serious, intellectually grounded anti-communist. It's like, like that was my my grind. And what brought me into conservatism was anti-communism. And if you read what Stalin's show trials were like, they were about as cruel and barbaric and evil as a thing can be, right? It was like literally uh, torturing people, starving people, beating people when that didn't work, putting guns to the heads of their children, their wives, you know, uh, you know, threatening to kill everybody that they knew, making them sign blank pieces of paper and they wrote in the confession later, all of these kinds. Of, I mean, just like the most barbaric, industrialized cruelty and violation of liberal norms imaginable. And yet it is a article of faith now on the supposedly anti-communist right to describe the toothless January 6th committee as a show trial. And not just a show trial, a Stalinist show trial. You have people like Newt Gingrich writing at length and repeatedly that this is literally uh, taking a page from Joseph Stalin. And, um, and I find it, it's kind of, it's, it's not the same thing, obviously, but it's in the same family tree as Holocaust denial, as far as I'm concerned. And it's so grotesque. And it feels to me that it's in part part of this desire to buck people lacking moral and intellectual confidence up, right? It's like, I have to describe this as like a Stalinist show trial to get people to have the confidence to hate it. Because if I tell them this is an ill-advised committee that is messing up the PR and it's one-sided and the rules are weird and, and it's not, it's violating the tradition of the house. People are going to go back and watch wheel of fortune. I have to tell them that it's a Stalinist show trial. And I expect that from jackasses. I just, the buy-in from the sort of mainstream right about this stuff really, really bothers me. Yeah. And that was kind of the, the point of my, my Tuesday piece was that I think people have concluded that, um, cooperating with this stuff, tolerating this stuff, or, or really energetically embracing this stuff is the, is the way to achieve power. And I think they're probably wrong about that. I think that maybe it works in, in the very, very short term. But um, you hear this a lot on the right, that, well, you, we have to accommodate the kind of Trumpist element because we can't you know, hold power with them, without them. And uh, well, can we hold power with them? Because they, they won one election and then you know, lost the presidency, the House, the Senate, um, the Republican Party is in a pretty good state of disarray. Uh, they've nominated some just terrible, terrible candidates in what should have been otherwise easily winnable races. And something I'm, I'm writing that I've been working on is um, there was a similar thing at work in the Democratic Party kind of between, uh, between the Civil War and the New Deal, where these northern liberals and southern segregationists and the northern liberals would tell themselves, well, in order to have power, we have to you know, accommodate these southern segregationists. But you know, in those years, they won a majority in, uh, I don't think they actually won a majority in a presidential election ever in those years. Um, they did win two presidents. They did have two presidents. Presidents They had Wilson and uh, Cleveland, I guess. And I want to say that, um, you know, for all the talk about the sort of Southern power in the Senate, that Republicans controlled the Senate in maybe 31 out of 38 Congresses in those years, something like that. So mm-hmm. they, they told themselves this story that you know, doing this sort of deal with the devil was necessary to hold on to power and to achieve power. They didn't get any power out of it. Um, it was a way of keeping themselves into kind of a minority status. And it wasn't really until a rethinking of their priorities, their political model, their coalitional model, 
and their and their policy program under FDR and the New Deal that they really became um, a big national power once more. And I think Republicans are in, in some ways telling themselves a similar kind of fairy tale that we have to you know engage in this imbecilic uh, populism because that's the only way to get the agenda done. Well, it's not getting the agenda done, as I think is pretty clear. And um, you know, we may be looking back in twenty years and saying that um, this is essentially what's kept Republicans out of power for a long time, or maybe not. Oh no, no, no! I, I think you're you're definitely not. I mean, and every, we'll put a link in the show notes. Everyone should read um, your Tuesday piece because it was um, far more piquant than this 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 genteel conversation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I think I think you're absolutely right. There's this this belief that this yeah, you're, you're right by the way i'm probably one of the few people who's more of an ass in print than i am uh in person <laughs> what's well, sort of like you know it's it's similar to, to our friend andy mccarthy who uh you know i love dearly mm-hmm. but because i think he learned how to write writing prosecutors briefs yeah he really just swings for the fences when he writes and then you hear him talk and you're like wow that guy's reasonable <laughs> you know um, i'm not saying his writing is unreasonable but like he can really press when he when he's got his blood up. He writes a prosecutor's brief. Yeah, I mentioned this before, but you know, for for years, I was Andy's editor, really, in National Review. I was like, I was the McCarthy guy, and um, and Andy and I would have these occasionally very heated uh, exchanges in which I would say, "You cannot possibly believe this thing that you were writing." <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I believe. And I'm like, All right, well, I'll try to help you write this in a in a, in a better way. Yeah, Andy's great. He's um, enormously valuable person to have just because of his knowledge and experience writing the things he writes. I, I kind of like when ethnic stereotypes come to life sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Andy's sort of uh, Irish-American, um, I am as angry as I can possibly be right now. <laughs> and five minutes later, you're my best friend in the world. Let's go have a drink is um, is a very fun thing to have. Yeah, Cato, Cato Byrne. Blessed be her memory was a lot like that too. Yes. But I don't think I was going to say is I think you're right. And I think that like the, I'm sorry. And, and I got complaints when I used the, uh, uh, this word last week because the bleep was so loud. It scared some people while they were driving, but your point in the Tuesday piece about how everyone thinks bullshit is what's going to get them through the total power, I think is right. The only thing I would point out is like harkening back to our earlier conversation about how both parties operate as if they have unstable short-term holds on power, even though they're, they've convinced themselves that they are the majority party. Um, but they act as if they are the minority party and are terrified they're going to lose power. So they try to get at their entire agenda as quickly as possible. I think you can make a very similar case about the Democrats is that, you know, like the Democrats, there's an enormous amount of BS in the defining rhetoric from Democrats. It doesn't take the exact form that it does with Republicans because I think of the asymmetry between the institutions that Democrats hold versus the ones that Republicans hold. So they can't they can't talk the way Republicans do about the elites because if they use the word elite, I mean, like, who are they going to be talking about? They're going to be talking about them, right? I mean, it's like they all, they control higher education, they control Hollywood, they control media, and so Republicans get a little bit more of a wider lane to use bombastic populist rhetoric. But the substance of like the 1% stuff and, you know, the millionaires and billionaires stuff um, and the, you know, the white supremacy stuff is as boob baity in its own way as the crazy stuff that you get on the right. Well, it's also it's it's the great thing of inventing an imaginary villain, mm-hmm. you know, so the 1% stuff. This is an abstraction, right? So it's 
Well, we know a lot of rich people, and there are a lot of rich people in our party and a lot of rich people who support us, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this other group of people that we can't really put a name or a face on and these other sorts of elites. You're talking around something that I call, I'll call Williamson's second law of politics, which is that when Democrats are in power, they act like they will never be out of power. And when Republicans are out of power, they act like they'll never be in power. But um, it's the same kind of, you know, burn the bridges, uh, scorched thinking in, in both cases. But yeah, they come out in different ways. Um, yeah, the anti-elitist stuff just drives me up the wall and the anti-establishment stuff. I know I've told the story before, but I was at a... Um, I was at a dinner and was, I'll just point out that it was hosted by Larry Kudlow. That's how anti-establishment this is. And there was a guy there who was just talking about, you know, how he's anti-establishment and the establishment hates him. And he's at war with the establishment. I said, dude, you're the chairman of your state party. <laughs> <laughs> if there's an establishment, it's you. You know, you are right. literally the establishment. But um, it's just how yeah, people like to talk about stuff. And um, But there really is, I think, a great kind of political benefit in creating imaginary enemies to run against because imaginary enemies don't get a vote and um, and they don't make donations and things like that. So, you know, creating these phony demons when you don't have real demons to serve you is, I think, a really very useful thing. When I was a little kid uh, growing up in Lubbock, when I was in about third grade, we had a we had a gang for a while, you know, and uh, but our problem was there wasn't another gang to be our enemy. And without an enemy, you don't have any meaning, right? It's pointless having a gang with no enemy. So we had to invent one. You know, and it was like the kids in Springfield you're talking about where we made up this whole kind of, you know, Tolkien level backstory for the uh, leadership and personnel of this other gang. And and the game, you know, lasted just as long as everyone went away with it. It was like went along with it. It was like playing Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. It was essentially a role playing game. And um, I get the sense that that's kind of the dynamic of our politics. Like there are some of these QAnon people who really believe this stuff. And there are some of them who really don't. And it's just kind of, um, it's, a, it's a sort of social and moral signifier for them. And it's a way of talking about things that maybe they don't have a vocabulary to talk about very much. So sometimes when people are saying, well, this guy's a Marxist, this guy's a communist, they don't really literally mean that. Even the ones who know, you know, what a Marxist and a communist actually is, don't really literally mean it. But um, these epithets serve a, um, a bigger and more subtle social and political role. 15 years ago, I wrote a column that got me so, bought me so much grief from the serious anti-war left that, you know, like it was literally a half-life of four, that went on for years of angry email that I got from it. And it was mostly from people who misunderstood my point. I wrote a column saying, how come nobody has killed Julian Assange yet? And the point wasn't that Julian Assange should be killed. I didn't argue. I wasn't arguing that. I was explicit about that. My point was, is that if you believe the stuff that is in Hollywood movies, that it comes from the left, if you read The Nation about what the CIA, because remember, we forget, like the argument about the deep state used to be a much more left wing. Yeah. And it used to be about, you know, the military industrial complex. And, you know, in the Jason Bourne movies, all you have to do is literally say the word Blackbriar on a cell phone. And the entire military industrial complex pounces on you because they're so you confident about the United Fruit Company. <laughs> <laughs> and so like the. If if the CIA was really this group of 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 cold blooded assassins that took out their enemies the second they pres presented a threat to their power, then, you know, the 
Julian Assange's cigar should have blown up or he should have like, you know, woken up with strychnine or a scorpion in his bed or whatever. And my only point was to say that maybe the CIA is not the demonic force that you think it is and that maybe a lot of the things that they do badly have more to do with incompetence and bureaucracy than have to do with like supervillain stuff, right? And the same thing, I, I'm not going to write it because Lord knows people want me to like write this and get all sorts of grief for it. But like you can make a similar argument about Donald Trump, right? It's like if he is such a threat to the deep state and the deep state will stop at nothing and the deep state got, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, why are they letting Donald Trump like commandeer American politics? Why are like the powers that be in the establishment? And it turns out the reason is that there is, there. I mean, yeah, there's an administrative deep state in the sense of like, there's a lot of stupid bureaucracy run wild and new class stuff going on. I actually believe that stuff. I wrote about it in my book. But it is not Hydra, right? It is not, you know, Spectre. And, um, but it's like you're invisible. It's like you're, you're made up gang. And I did something similar when I was a kid. It's like you, the made up gang is just much more exciting because in it, and it gives you this sense of, of you buying heroism on the cheap. Because if you can convince yourself that this enemy is even remotely real, then you're incredibly courageous for challenging it. And the reality is, it's the only problem is it's just not there. Completely unrelated side note: um, Did you ever see the play The God of Carnage? I don't think I did. No, uh, it was a wonderful play about you know these two New York couples, their kids get into a fight at school. But in the in the original cast, one of the, the fathers is played by James Gandolfini, who was just coming off of The Sopranos, and he learns that his kid was in a gang. You know, has this imaginary gang at school, and he says, "Huh." I used to have a gang. Falls <laughs> <And the audience laughs> apart. It was um, it was a good good moment of casting. We're coming up on time, but since you're in Texas, I, every now and then I like to check in on you in Texas. Hmm. I heard a piece on NPR the other day that felt like some serious wish casting. Um, yeah. In that, it's better or Rook's going to be elected. Yeah. Well, the gist of it is like now it's a race because he's within seven points and. Right. Um, I have a certain Iran-Iraq war attitude towards the governor's race in Texas, as it is, but um, that se- just seems to me remarkably implausible that Beto O'Rourke has a chance to win. Does he? I'd be surprised if he broke 40% or got much above 40%. That seems to be kind of the uh, recent uh, ceiling on, on Democrats. You know, uh, Wendy Davis was the same kind of thing that, um, you know, the abortion issue was going to carry her forward, and it was the year of the woman again and all that. So eventually Texas is going to become competitive. You know, Texas is, people forget that Texas is a very, very urban state. So I forget it's, what is it? Seven out of the 20 biggest U.S. cities are in Texas, something like that. And, um, you know, Dallas has suburbs that are bigger than San Francisco. And um, urban places tend to vote Democratic. You know, so I don't think Dallas has had a Republican mayor since the 1950s or 1960s. It's pretty uh, solidly Democratic place. Houston's a solidly Democratic place. San Antonio is as Democratic a place as you will find anywhere in the country. It's probably more Democratic than the Bay Area is. Um, Even, you know, Fort Worth has uh, ceased to be predictably Republican. So the, the, the largest city in Texas now that is solidly, predictably Republican in elections is, is Lubbock, which is, you know, fewer than 300,000 people. So eventually that's going to matter. You know, the more urban Texas becomes, the more Democrat it's going to become. And there are people here in Texas, you know, some intelligent conservatives who are trying to work 
on urban issues and urban politics, specifically in the context of Texas, without which the Republican Party is not going to have much of a future here. Um, I would be surprised if it were very close this time around. I think that governor's elections in big states are like presidential elections in that any major party candidate can win. You know, it wasn't that long ago Republicans used to win the governorship in California and New York and places like that. Uh, you've got Republican governors right now in states where people don't expect to see them. And um, so the, the reverse thing can happen as well. Now, I don't think Beto is actually a very good candidate. I live in a, I live in a big city and my big city has the same big city politics as every other big city. So there's, there's a yard down the street from me that has three Beto signs in the yard. You know, there's, there's Beto sign every other house, just about. And um, Beto will get 90% of the vote in my neighborhood. But uh, that's not going to be enough to, to carry him across, I don't think. So I had a friend, actually a mutual friend, but we'll keep his name out of it, um, who was telling me. I bet I already know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, who's, who, <laughs> who, who gave me some interesting pushback on the Hispanics moving towards the Republican Mm-hmm. party point i mean he wasn't disputing it but he was saying you know there's an important caveat that like the hispanics in texas at least who are moving it to, towards the republican party tend to be in border counties yeah and there's just not a lot of them compared to the hispanics in dallas and houston and you know and san antonio and and those hispanics really aren't moving um in statistically significant numbers towards Republicans. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's misunderstood about that is that just if you look at the, you know, cephology of this, the qualifier Hispanic just doesn't tell you very much about how someone's going to vote. So mm-hmm. in Texas, anywhere. So, well, I don't know. California does it. I mean, well, like Hispanics in California tend to vote like Californians and Hispanics in Texas. Right. Tend to vote yeah, like okay. Yeah, right. So, you know, I, I hate the whole term Hispanic Latino because it's such a, mm-hmm big, you know, group of people, and they don't necessarily have a lot in common. And even people who are, you know, Hispanics who hail from the same national background often are very, very different people and they're very different kinds of communities. So, you know, you have people who call themselves Tejanos, uh, typically in border counties in Texas, who are often from families who have, you know, been in the same uh, farming and ranching communities for hundreds of years. And they act like farmers and ranchers everywhere else in the state do. Um, whereas people who are government employees in Harris County, Texas, act like government employees in Philadelphia. Um, you know, these are the things that really, I think, are the, are the better indicators than, than the other stuff. Yeah, we've got, you know, some people of Mexican background in Texas who are really, really conservative and uh, increasingly comfortable with the Republican Party. And, you know, a lot of the, the folks who um, were Democrats were a little bit like my grandfather, who were... Um, they were essentially New Dealers. They were people with agricultural backgrounds who weren't really politically on the left, and they certainly weren't socially on the left. Um, but they thought of the Republican Party as being a group of people who hated them and who did not have their their best interests at heart. And um, it took a long time to to get over that. You know, people forget how democratic a state Texas was until the day before yesterday. You know, Rick Perry was a registered Democrat for years. He was, um, you know, he was the uh, Honorary chairman of the Gore campaign in Texas in 88, I think. And um, we had how many Republican governors from the Civil War to the end of the 20th century? Like three or something like that? You know, not very many. So Phil Graham um, was a Democratic congressman who switched, you know, switched parties. 
I'm sorry, remember? Phil Graham, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. Phil Graham. Yeah, yeah. And, and ran again. That was actually, that was, uh, that was an honorable thing to do, I thought. But it was a very honorable thing to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah to resign and give the people a chance to elect him or not reelect him. Although he was, you know, he's a Georgian, and uh, I think his, you know, kind of a little bit of that deep South kind of uh, politics to him more than than Texas politics in some ways. I don't think it's going to be, you know, that the change in the voting habits of people of Mexican background in Texas are really going to be the big determinant. Um, A story I do tell from time to time, because people really do get dumb about the the Hispanic thing and the Latino thing. Years ago, I was talking to a guy in in West Texas, where I'm from, who's a, a restaurateur out there. And he was saying, you know, we got to we got to do something about this border. We got to really get control of this. This is well before Trump and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I tend to agree, but aren't aren't you an illegal? You know, <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, but we got Guatemalans coming in here now. You don't want Guatemalans coming in here. People from El Salvador. You know, the um, the idea that everyone from a um, you know Spanish speaking background or a distantly Spanish speaking background somehow has something in common is just preposterous yeah no we had we had a great talk with uh david bernstein on here who has this whole book about racial classifications and the hispanic stuff is just so internally incoherent it's it's mind-boggling i i did enjoy i don't know if you followed this they're coming out with another movie they're making another movie about fidel or a movie about fidel castro and they've cast james franco in the lead and people are freaking out i saw this quote from john leguizamo about when will this stop this is outrageous he's not even hispanic and the thing is, is like, I, I'm open to correction on this, but Castro was an entirely white guy of Spanish parents, European parents. And so the whole argument that this is outrageous because Franco's not Hispanic boils down to the fact that he didn't grow up speaking the Spanish language, right? It's not, you know, and, and like, and again, I find this whole, those, all these arguments about acting particularly ridiculous because the whole point of acting is to make believe you're somebody else. So we're going to have a, a Spanish-speaking dictator who goes around in a military uniform played by a guy named Franco. That's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, uh, you didn't believe me when uh, I had written that uh, when Franco died, the Spanish dic- supposedly fascist dictator of Spain died, Cuba declared like but three days of mourning about it. And I remember you saying how you had to go look it up because you just couldn't believe it. And I was right. Um, I don't remember if it was three days, but it was a day, it was declared a period of national mourning because Castro loved Franco and and had no major philosophical problems with supposedly fascist Spain. Yeah, that whole um, kind of weird politics is, is sort of interesting. I, I went through a period of reading about Franco a few years ago and... Um, Maybe someone could recommend one to me. I don't think I've ever found a really good biography of Franco. People tend to have a very strong point of view about him. Either they they love the guy, they hate the guy, and all of the biographies of him, which granted I only maybe read five, were um, seem to be um, grinding a lot of axes. Yeah, I mean, like, what motivates someone to write an even-handed biography of Franco? Um, just, you know, I'm sure that person exists, but... It's 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 hard, you know. Um, Respect for the historian's trade, you know. I think that uh, I, that, that this actually brings up a serious point. That I think that um, one of our enormous problems is that um, the intellectual professions have really lost their self-respect in a lot of ways. And uh, so, what's the point of having even-handed journalism about Adolf Hitler? Well, because journalism is valuable. And uh, what's the point of having you know even-handed history about Franco? Well, you know, history's history's valuable, and uh, we need to we need to know stuff. 
Also, the the nice thing about an even-handed take on Hitler is that you will still come away thinking Hitler was a pretty bad dude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like the truth is a defense against uh, for for condemning Hitler. Yeah, even even so, I think that people feel the need to to gild the lily in these stories in some ways. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Kevin Williamson, thank you so much for doing this, for indulging us as we went a little long, but I'm sure most listeners will be happy about it. Um, I'll get complaints from people about why we talked about dogs at the beginning, and then I'll get complaints from people complaining about the complaints, and uh, it's just the nature of life. But thank you again for doing this. My pleasure. All right, so uh, Kevin Williamson has left the building, uh, the studio, whatever. Uh, always great to talk to him. If I feel like I live in a remnant, then he is in the remnant-ish corner of the remnant um, and has been for a very long time. And uh, and I'd have him on every week if I could. But uh, do check out his piece on um, on the sort of Republic of BS. I can't remember what the exact title was, but that's the gist of it. Um, and sign up for his newsletter. It's a great newsletter. And um, I was going to mention it when we were talking about Hillary Clinton's commodity trading. If you've never read Jim Glassman's New Republic piece, I think it was called Hillary's Cows from uh, the mid-90s, it is a fantastic explainer of how there was just simply no way Hillary Clinton, at least the way she described that she did it, managed to make all that money in cattle futures. Anyway, it's worth reading if you can find it. I don't know if the New Republic is eager to have that stuff outside the paywall these days. And um, thanks again for indulging us on the um, the AMA episode of of the Remnant. Um, I haven't looked at the comments on that yet, out of fear and trepidation. We're going to do uh, more next week, and um, so until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. I like it. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.